IO9 presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 46 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, I'm John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of Lightspeed and Fantasy Magazine. I'm also the editor of several anthologies, such as Wastelands and Brave New Worlds. My forthcoming books include Lightspeed Year One, Under the Moons of Mars, New Adventures on Barsoom, and Armored. And I'm David Barr-Curtley. I'm the author of many short stories, including Captain Victory, a science fiction adventure story for young atheists about the things that matter most. Chases, sword fights, hero worship, mistaken identity, sudden epiphanies, shattered illusions, genocide, creation myths, puppy love, the evolution debate, Clark's Law, religious, zealot, anthropomorphic cats, and raw allusions to Planet of the Apes and Thundercats. The story is available for free online in the June 2010 issue of Lightspeed Magazine. And our guest today is evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. He came to prominence with his book The Selfish Gene, which popularized the gene-centered view of evolution and introduced the term meme. He followed that up with other books on evolutionary biology, such as The Extended Phenotype and The Blind Watchmaker. In his 2006 book The God Delusion, which has sold more than 2 million copies, he contends that a supernatural creator almost certainly does not exist. His most recent book is The Magic of Reality, a picture book illustrated by Dave McKean. Okay, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Richard Dawkins. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so your new book, The Magic of Reality, is a science book aimed at kids. Uh, what gave you the idea for this book, and what are you hoping to accomplish with it? Well, uh, science is wonderful, science is important, and so are children, so are young people. <laughs> and so what could be better than write a science book for young people? But actually, it's a book for all ages. Okay, and so, you know, each chapter begins, with, uh, be begins by presenting some of the mythological, pre-scientific... Yes, each, each chapter begins as a question, like, what is a rainbow, what is an earthquake, what is the sun... And then begins, as you say, with mythical answers to that. And then, uh, having dealt with the three or four myths, uh, proceeds to what really is the sun, what really is an earthquake, which is, of course, the scientific answer. And so uh, what, were, what are some examples of some of the myths that you included uh, that are interesting? Well, let me think. Um, in the case of the sun, um, there are Aztec myths, which are <laughs> quite amusing. Um, and which unfortunately end up rather less amusing with the horrific rituals of offering sacrifices of human hearts to the sun god. Um, and there are there's ancient Greek myths of the sun, ancient Egyptian myths of the sun. Uh, in the case of the rainbow, there's the legend of Utnapashtim uh, from the Epic of Gilgamesh in ancient Sumeria, who was told by one of the gods to build an enormous boat to hold all the animals, because there was a great flood coming. And he did, and then when the flood went down, the gods put up a rainbow as a signal that they were never going to make another flood again. That may sound familiar, hmm. uh, and it's because, of course, the story of Noah was simply a plagiarism of the Sumerian story of Utnapashtim. I, th I thought it was interesting. You, you make the point in the book that, that all of these ancient myths, though they were supposedly inspired by all-knowing gods, don't include anything that the peoples themselves weren't familiar with. So they make no reference to diseases being caused by microorganisms or that the universe is expanding, anything like that. 
Yes, um, that's right. I'd forgotten I made that point, but it's quite <laughs> a point. Yes. Okay, thanks for reminding me of that. Uh, so the book is illustrated by Dave McKean. Uh, how'd you two start working together? Uh, this was fixed up by the publishers and by our respective literary agents, um, and so it, it worked very well, and I think the pictures are, are, are very good and, and suit the text very well. Uh, but I, I didn't fix it up myself, I don't think. I can't remember. <laughs> I think it was done by the publishers. Uh, so did you focus on the text and just leave the art to Dave, or did you exactly. uh, sort of... Yes, I, I just wrote the text, and then he took the text and pretty much chose what mm -hmm. he wanted to illustrate. I mean, there are some places where the text makes reference to the art. Did you add? Did of you course, say, yeah. yes. Now, I mean, there was a certain amount of back and forth, and and so when when he'd done the art, then of course I modified the text to to um, uh, make reference to it. I mean, speaking of sort of educating children, you know, there, there's often a conflict we have between the rights of parents to direct the upbringing of their children versus the rights of children to be exposed to accurate information. I mean, how do you think that we should try to balance those two interests? My balance would come out in favor of the children. Uh, uh, I guess there's some rights of parents, what they choose their children to learn, but um, I'm biased in favor of freeing children to learn and uh, not letting parents be too doctrinaire in uh, indoctrinating their children. Okay, and so creationists often try to mislead the public into thinking that there's a scientific controversy over whether evolution happens at all, uh, which is, of course, ridiculous. Um, yes, it is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, what, are, what are some like actual scientific controversies among evolutionary biologists? There are some very interesting controversies. I mean, there's the controversy over the importance of natural selection rather than random genetic drift in guiding evolution or, or driving evolution. Um, and that, that's an active controversy, very interesting one, plenty of data to, to bear upon it. I think nobody would complain, nobody would claim that random genetic drift is capable of producing adaptation, that's to say the illusion of design. Uh, random genetic drift can't produce wings that are good at flying or eyes that are good at, at, at seeing or um, legs that are good at running. Um, but random genetic drift probably is very important in, uh, that in driving the evolution at the molecular genetic level. Uh, that's one controversy. Another one is the controversy over uh, punctuated equilibrium um, in the fossil record, which you may have heard of. Um, so there are very interesting controversies in evolution. But whether evolution happens at all is not one of them. Hmm. It definitely does. Is, is group selection, is that, would you say that's an active controversy? Yeah, that, uh, yes, you, I mean, that we'd have to include that. I don't think that's a very interesting controversy. I think it's largely a controversy about words. Uh, but yes, I mean, that, that is a controversy which you can find active scientists participating in, unlike the alleged controversy over whether evolution happens at all, where no active scientist thinks that it doesn't. Uh, I mean, what, what do you think about the issue of um, whether homosexuality is biological and how would natural selection um, account for that or be involved with that? Superficially, it's a problem if it is genetic, if the difference between people's sexual preferences is genetic, because at least a pure homosexual would be unlikely to reproduce and therefore pass on the genes. So the first question to ask is, is it actually genetic? And the answer is probably to some extent yes. There's some evidence from twin studies 
comparing monozygotic twins who have exactly the same genes pretty much with dizygotic twins who don't. Uh, and because uh, homosexuality is one of the many things which is more highly correlated between monozygotic than dizygotic twins, we probably have to conclude that there is a genetic component. And that means that we have an, a Darwinian problem to explain why um, male homosexuality, for example, seems to be uh, about 10%, if that's too high uh, to be easily explained. Um, various explanations have been offered. There's the, the worker bee theory that um, gay men look after not their children, but their nephews and nieces, etc. Um, there's the uh, sneaky male theory that um, apparently homosexual males are often actually bisexual, and the fact that they appear to be homosexual leads dominant males in our, in our cavemen ancestor, so to speak, to leave them behind when they went off, leave the, leave the women in, in their charge. And this would have been a possible way in which um, genes that make men appear to be homosexual could get passed on by sneakily, so to speak, mating with females when the dominant males are away. I, I'm not that wedded to either of those two theories. I rather like the idea that when we talk about genes for anything, like a gene for being gay or a gene for being aggressive or something of that sort, a gene for anything may not have been a gene for that thing under different environmental conditions. And the hypothetical example that I've used for that is, suppose that there's a gene that makes you gay if you were bottle-fed, but makes you, but, but doesn't, has some completely different effect if you were breastfed. So in the days before bottles were invented, that gene would not have manifested itself as gay behavior. But now that bottles are, are common, it can do so. I hasten to stress that I only use the idea of bottle feeding as a possible example. I have absolutely no evidence that that is an environmental trigger for this particular gene, but there could be a trigger of some sort from the environment, uh, in which case we would be asking the wrong question if we say, why do gay genes survive? Because it may be that at the time when natural selection was really going on, uh, there was no such thing as a gay gene. Uh, so what are some recent developments in evolutionary biology that you're the most excited about? Well, uh, there's a perennial problem of um, what's the use of sex, and uh, that is still unsolved. Um, I'm very excited by molecular evolutionary studies uh, and the use of molecular genetics to reconstruct uh, possible ancestral trees, work out how long ago um, the common ancestor lived of any two species you care to name, like, say, humans and chimpanzees, and molecular data suggests that the common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees lived rather recently, only about six million years ago, uh, and you can do similar molecular analyses to work out how long ago the common ancestor of any other pair of species lived. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, molecular genetics can also show up some rather surprising relationships, like, for example, the close relationship of whales to hippopotamuses, which I think nobody ever guessed mm. until the molecular data was looked at. And the closest relatives of 
whales are hippopotamuses and even closer than any other um, cloven-hoofed animals. So it's not that whales and all the cloven-hoofed animals are sort of distant cousins. It's that that whales come off actually within the cloven-hoofed animals. They're closer to hippos than to anything else. And that's a very remarkable finding, um, which is... um, has come about purely since the molecular genetics revolution. And there are lots more like that. There are projects to analyze the genome of extinct animals like mammoths and like um, Neanderthal people. And I I find them very exciting as well. Could you elaborate a bit on the what is sex good for issue? I mean, it seems... Like, I would think that sex is a good way for there to be genetic variety within the population for natural selection to act on. Uh, yes. That, well, that's fine if you think that natural selection works at the level of the population. Uh, if you think that natural selection chooses good populations versus bad populations, good groups. In other words, if you're a group selectionist, mm-hmm. um, then, 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 then there's not a problem. But there is a problem if you're not a group selectionist, as most evolutionists are not. Uh, and so... Um, you have to face the fact that, on the face of it, uh, an asexual female, a female who doesn't indulge in sex and simply clones herself, is twice as successful at passing on her genes as a female who uses sex. Um, A a female who simply dispensed with males altogether would be doing better under quite a lot of conditions. And so whatever the benefit of sex is, it can't be a slight benefit. It's got to be a colossal benefit to overcome the enormous benefit of being asexual. And, and so that's really why, why it's a difficult problem and why it's been exercising the minds of evolutionary theorists for ooh, about 30 years now. Okay. I mean, you know, since our show is called Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, obviously we're big Douglas Adams fans. Now, you you knew Douglas Adams, and he talked a lot about what a big influence your books were on his thinking. Could you just tell us how did you first become aware of Douglas Adams, and how did the two of you first meet? I um, loved his books, and I I particularly was fond of uh, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. And I think it's the only book where I've read it and then immediately turned straight back to page one and started again and read it all the way through again without a break. And I then wrote him a fan letter. Hmm. I think it's the only fan letter I've ever written. And um, then he wrote me a fan letter back, which was very nice, and um, invited me to visit him next time I went to London, and I did. And uh, I remember uh, ringing the bell in his house in in North London, and um, this gigantic man coming to the door. I mean, he wasn't fat, he was tall. Um, Well, I mean, well-built, but tall. Uh, And clearly amused at the reaction that that one's first sight of him had on people, uh, because he he knew that his height was rather striking. And, but he was just sort of gently laughing. And we hit it off immediately. And, um, uh, quite frequently met after that. I used to use him as my sort of guru on technological questions, and he he and I both love the Apple Macintosh, and so every time a new Mac came out or a new gadget came out that you could run on a Mac, we would sort of exchange notes on it, and, and he would tell me what it could do and things like that. 
So I understand he actually introduced you to your wife, uh, Lala Ward. Uh, how yes, did, how'd that true. come about? Yes, that is true. Um, he, he knew her through a different route. He knew her because he had been scriptwriter for Doctor Who at one stage in, in that series. Uh, any Doctor Who script which is witty, <laughs> and not all witty, but if you come across one that's witty, it's almost certainly going to be one of Douglas Adams's. Um, he injected a wonderful sort of surreal wit um, into the into the Doctor Who scripts. Anyway, he wrote the script while she was uh, playing the the uh, companion, and um, so he knew her through that. And we met Lala and I met at his I think it was his fortieth birthday party, and uh, we were introduced to let me think. Uh, that's right. Um, we were introduced to each other uh, by Douglas, who was at that time talking to Stephen Fry who's another immensely tall man. <laughs> and so Lala and I, as it were, conversed underneath this archway, <laughs> which was uh, Douglas Adams and Stephen Fry sort of talking over our heads. And um, so that, Lala and I talked through this archway for a bit, and then the, the party was so incredibly noisy, we couldn't hear ourselves speak, and so we simply left the party and went off and had dinner. And we've pretty much been together ever since. See, uh, on YouTube, I came across this video where it's from a TV program where you invited a volunteer from the audience to read a section of Hitchhiker's Guide, and then it turns out that Douglas Adams is sitting in the crowd, and he comes up and reads a section uh, about the animals who want to be eaten. Um, well, you didn't, you didn't really believe that it just turned out that way. Oh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, that, that was a, quite a nice little, little episode because it, it's supposed to be children who, um, who, who come up when you call for volunteers, obviously. And so I sort of said in, in, in my best sort of uh, avuncular voice, would anybody like to come up and help me with this next experiment? Well, not whatever it was, with, with reading this passage from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And so a great forest of hands shot up, little hands, uh, plus one very big hand, uh, which was Douglas. And so I called him out, and this enormous man <laughs> came to the front and read this lovely passage from the restaurant at the end of the universe where the the animal that's been bred to be eaten and to enjoy it and to want to be eaten. It's a very, very typically Douglas thing, a lovely flight of, I didn't, well, fancy, but also flight of intelligent thought. Was that just a one-time thing, or did the two of you do any other public appearances together? Uh, yes, we did, as a matter of fact. We, we appeared together at a literary festival. That, uh, all over Britain, there are, there are a number of literary festivals I forget which one this was. It might have been Cheltenham. And um, we appeared on the stage together. I think he was kind of interviewing me about whatever was my current latest book. I forget which one that was. But it it was it went very well. And I I don't know if there's a recording of it. I'd love to think that there was. If you if you've got if you've got good sleuthing skills to find it on YouTube, I'd love to know. Hmm. Um. So uh, besides Douglas Adams, uh, would you consider yourself a science fiction fan? Um, and if so, uh, who are some of your favorite authors? I, I couldn't really because I haven't read enough. I'm, I'm not one of those people who reads these science fiction magazines like Astounding Science Fiction and so on. I've read a, a, a fair number, not that many, science fiction books by a fairly limited number of authors. Um, Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov, Fred Hoyle. Fred Hoyle, the, uh, the, the famous astronomer, the, the great astrophysicist, 
um, who invented the steady-state theory of the universe and was a very, a very distinguished physicist who, who should have won the Nobel Prize, actually, but didn't because he was such an impossible character. Hmm. Um, but Fred Hoyle wrote uh, a, 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 quite a lot of science fiction, most of which is not very good. Um, it's sort of potboiler stuff, but the first one, The Black Cloud, is excellent, and... Uh, a couple of others that he wrote on Andromeda, the, um, um, A for Andromeda and Andromeda Breakthrough. Those three books by Fred Hoyle are very good and among the best science fiction I've read, mainly because they, um, they, they actually teach a lot of science. They actually, actually learned a lot of science from his science fiction books. And I wrote, I wrote a, a, a foreword to... A, a reprinting of the black cloud um or maybe it was an audio edition i think it was an audio edition of the black cloud and so i put down a list of the science that i had learned from it um i'm very fond of a, of a, an author called daniel galloy who i mm. i don't think he's written all that many books but i've read three of them and they're they're all very good um john windham I can't think of very many more. Okay, um, so uh, I've, heard, I've heard you say that you might actually want to write science fiction yourself someday. Uh, is that something you're still considering? I haven't thought very seriously about it. Uh, I, occasionally, I, I wonder if, if I might, but I don't have a plot in mind. I, I heard you say at one point that um, you, know, you, you, you liked this idea that if you were to, the, if you were to trace your ancestry back um, at each stage, the people would be able to reproduce with each other, but people at one, you know, if you get far enough apart, the people can't reproduce yes. with each other. And then yes. you might want to do a science fiction novel involving that somehow. I, I, I don't remember saying that. It, I mean, that, that, that idea is certainly uh, prominent in the magic of reality. Mm. It's, it, it's, um, it dominates uh, the chapter two of the magic of reality. Um, I, I hadn't, I didn't remember that I thought of doing a science fiction story along those lines. I suppose you could, yes. But, I mean, you know, once you've said the plot, you've said it, really. <laughs> I'm not sure what, what you could do with it in the way of fiction. I, I think the other plot that I had thought of, which actually you might be able to do something with, is um, hybridizing uh, humans and chimps. Because um, that's borderline possible. I mean, it's never been done yet, but... It's not totally ridiculous to think about that um, or making a uh, since since we now have both the human genome and the chimp genome in in toto, um, you could theoretically concoct a kind of halfway stage between them, which you could either think of. Well, you could think of it as being a reconstruction of the common ancestor of humans and chimps, which lived six million years ago. Or I suppose you could think of it as what you might get if you hybridized it. Now, if you were to, to make that genome, that halfway house genome, and clone an, an, an individual from it, there I think you do have the makings of a, of a science fiction story because that would raise all sorts of problems, ethical problems in people's minds, social problems. And so you could use your fiction story to explore what might happen I mean, the uh, religious types would freak out totally, and uh, many people would think it was a very immoral thing to do. Um, you could explore the 
problems that the hybrid individual, the halfway house individual might have fitting into human society or indeed chimp society. So I think you could make a science fiction story about that. When, when you when you say you know talk about hybridizing humans and chimps, are you, are you talking about doing genetic engineering or actually just mating humans and chimps? Well, I mean, in in a fiction story, you could do you could do either of those, and and I'm not sure which would make which would make the best fiction story. Um, perhaps literally breeding them together, because that would engender an additional kind of frisson of yuck factor <laughs> uh, in people's minds. But um, the genetic engineering route um, might be more scientifically interesting. Yes, but it, it, humans and chimps are actually genetically closely enough uh, related that you actually could produce a... No, I, no I'm, not, I'm not saying that. And um, I suspect they're probably not close enough that you could actually mate them and, and breed in the ordinary way. But it, it's, they're not so far that it would be a ridiculous plot in a science fiction story. I mean, it would be less ridiculous, for example, than the plot of Jurassic Park, <laughs> which I, I rather like. I mean, I rather like the idea of of getting blood out of mosquitoes in amber. Um, I, and that's very ingenious. But I think that is actually less plausible than the hypothetical plot of mating a human and a chimpanzee and getting fertile offspring. What actually is uh, implausible about the Jurassic Park uh, mosquito thing? Oh, that um, the, the, the DNA doesn't survive that long. Mm. I mean, we're, to we're talking uh, 65 million years, um, and DNA uh, doesn't, doesn't survive that long. I mean, even if it did, um, you'd then have... A, it would be, then be a very difficult problem to grow the dinosaur. But, no, I mean, I, I, it's a reasonable science fiction plot. It, it falls within... The sort of brackets of what of what I would think make for good science fiction, as opposed to pure mystery fantasy, which I don't regard as science fiction at all. How about the the thing in there's this thing in Jurassic Park where they uh, they didn't have complete DNA for the dinosaurs, so they plugged in like African frog DNA or something, which enabled the dinosaurs to switch genders. Did you do you have any thoughts on any uh, of that stuff? Mm, I don't remember that detail. Um, I wouldn't have thought frog would be the right thing to go for. Bird would be better. Because birds are, well, birds are dinosaurs. Um, they're just dinosaurs that never went extinct. In, in other words, birds are closer related to some dinosaurs than they are to, than, than some dinosaurs are to others. So your advocacy for evolution has put you at odds with some really strange characters, such as Ted Haggard and Ben Stein. Uh, do any of those encounters stand out as the most surreal? Well, you've seen those two on film. Um... The Ted Haggard one was aggressive, or ended up aggressive, and uh, I think nowadays I wouldn't play it like that. I mean, I think I've now, I've now learned that a better way is to let these people hang themselves, give them enough rope to hang themselves, rather than argue with them. Um, in the case of Ben Stein, I didn't know I was arguing with him at all. I mean, I, was, I wasn't told this was a creationist front. Um, the producer a deeply dishonest man of the name of Mathis, I mean, a real slime ball, um, led me and various other people like uh, P.Z. Myers and Michael Roos and others led us all to believe that we were taking part in a serious science programme and in conversation with me, Mathis even led me to believe that he was an anti-creationist. Um, 
So when I met Ben, I never, I never heard of Ben Stein, um, and I was, and this rather unpleasant man came into the room, and I wasn't, I wasn't aware that he was unpleasant. I wasn't aware that he was a creationist, um, and I started answering his questions in good faith, and only sort of very gradually tumbled to the fact that this was, this interview was not what it had been, uh, advert, what not it had been cracked up to be, but I still treated his questions honestly. And so, for example, when he asked me whether I could, under any circumstances at all, think think of how um, life on Earth could have been intelligently designed, or could there ever be life that was intelligently designed, um, I bent over backwards to to think, well, you know, can I think of an extreme condition in which it might be intelligently designed? And I thought of Francis Crick's tongue-in-cheek suggestion that life on Earth had been seeded by directed panspermia, by some extraterrestrial intelligence um, seeding the Earth with bacterial life. And this sort of bending over backwards to think of a way in which intelligent life might, under some circumstances, you know, what's the best case I could make for intelligent life, was seized upon. Dawkins believed in little green men. Hmm. Um, and this was a, a thoroughly dishonest tactic, um, which, I mean, now, if, you, if, if anybody is listening um, who is ever in, invited to make a film by this man, Mathis, he's, he's dishonest. Don't do it. The, 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 the sort of run-ins with uh, Haggard and Stein, were those the sort of most obnoxious people that you've come face-to-face with, or are there things that aren't well, on tape that yeah, were well, worse? Well, you've seen the film of, of The Magic of Reality, but... Probably the most obnoxious of all was um, well, there were several <laughs> quite a lot of competition actually. I mean, there was a there was a, a former Jew turned Muslim. Um, did, have you seen that one? It's a, it, I've forgotten his name, but um, he was uh, he was a real case. He's actually quite nice when he wasn't on camera, but um, as soon as he was making his case for his fanatical brand of Islam, uh, he just became really, really violent in his language, saying, you know, what a great guy Hitler was and things like that. Um, And then there was another one who ran a show called Hell House somewhere in California. Uh, It's a a house where um, children are taken, children of 12, are taken to be shown in little acted-out tableaus what a horrible place hell is <laughs> and how you'll go to hell if you do each of various appalling things. Um, and these are really horrific acted tablets designed to scare the daylights out of children. Um, and uh, I thought he was obnoxious and certainly what he did was obnoxious. Um, so speaking of really strange characters, uh, I, I gather from your recent op-ed in the Washington Post that you're not a big fan of this year's uh, crop of Republican presidential contenders. Is anyone that you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, no, of, co- of course not. Um, uh, th- th- these people are know-nothings, um, and um, it, would be, it would be a tragedy if any of them was elected. No serious scientist or no, nobody even of... of, of any education at all takes creationism seriously. Uh, it's almost as though the American electorate is splitting into two two species. I mean, the sort of 
the, the civilized educated ones on the one hand and the and the total ignorant know-nothings on the other hand and it's terribly sad that a, a large number of voters seem prepared to vote for somebody because he's like them rather than because they think he's actually uh, qualified to lead the country so you know your website has this converts corner where there are letters from readers who have abandoned religion after reading your books uh, yes have any of those letters stood out as being particularly memorable I haven't looked at them for a while, but they're, they're well worth reading. Um, I, I, they're, they're quite numerous, and many of them are very nice. A lot of people say that they weren't actually converted by reading The God Delusion, but what The God Delusion did was give them the confidence to come out, give them the confidence to actually say what they believed, rather than to kind of secretly um, keep it to themselves. Uh, so you founded, a, uh, you founded an organization called the Richard Dawkins Foundation. Uh, what sorts of projects has the foundation been involved with? Um, in America, it's actually there, there are two. There's one in Britain and one in America with the same name. Um, in America, quite a lot of films, quite a lot of uh, uh, DVDs, videos, um, including things we call vignettes, which are sort of three-minute, five-minute little films of a scientist, it might be me, it might be somebody else, it might be me having a conversation with somebody else, um, trying to make one point, one little vignette point, which could then be used by teachers to sort of slot into their lessons, just to make one point. Also longer videos, which have been um, often conversations between me and another scientist or a philosopher or another scholar of some kind. We're trying to pioneer a sort of interview which is not really an interview. It's more of a conversation between two people, a kind of conversation between equals or between people who have expertise in different subjects, like, say, me as a biologist and Lawrence Krauss as a physicist, where we each learn from each other. So it's a kind of mutual tutorial, trying to get away from the debate format where um, you have a punch-up which doesn't really illuminate um, so we're trying to pioneer um, the mutual tutorial conversation rather than the debate punch-up. You know, I, I read, I read uh, richarddawkins.net all the time, and, and you actually post uh, in the comments threads fairly often. I mean, how, how, how uh, involved are you in running that site? I'm not involved in running it. Um, I do comment uh, quite often, as you say, maybe once a day, twice a day. And um, it, it varies. Um, but I keep an eye on it, as you do. I mean, you alluded to this a second ago, but, you know, you, you've often stressed how important it is for atheists to, atheists to become politically organized and to speak up. Uh, if people want to sort of get involved with that, how should they go about it? Well, um, uh, I think that um, what, what we're going to try and do on our website is to launch a slightly more of an activism section um, where people can find out about what other people are trying to do in, in their particular local area. I'm not quite sure how we're going to do this, but um, it'll, be, it'll be in some form. People will be able to look in their own local area and find out what sort of activism is going on there, how they might be able to, uh, to uh, join in. Uh, all right, so that does it for our questions. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't cover? Well, um, the book, uh, The Magic of Reality, is shortly coming out in America. 
and um, it's already out in Britain and is doing very well. It's um, it's gone straight into the Sunday Times bestseller list, which is the sort of British equivalent of the New York Times bestseller list. Um, it's gone straight in at number two, um, which is excellent news. It's not rather unusual for a book to go straight in so high on the list as that. Um, there's an app for the iPad coming out any minute now, um, which is a sort of ebook version of the magic of reality. Um, only runs on the iPad. It doesn't run on the Kindle, um, and it's more than just an ebook because it has it has all the pictures for one thing, but it also has various simulations, games, um, animations, uh, which illustrate points in the book to to help explain things with. Where, where an animation or a, or, a, or a movie does it better than just still pictures. All right, great. Well, Richard Dawkins, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you very much. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Richard Dawkins for joining us on the show. Okay, and so our uh, discussion topic for today is going to be atheism and science fiction. And uh, it's certainly something that I've noticed, that there tends to be a disproportionate number of atheists and agnostics uh, among fantasy and science fiction readers. And uh, I'm not the only one to have noticed this. I, I came across this really funny article on uh, some sort of religious website called wayoflife.org. And this article is called Beware of Science Fiction. <laughs> and uh, like half of this article is scare quotes. I'll try to use my, you know, with my voice indicate where they are. But so it says, Science fiction takes the reader into a strange world without God. Oh, there might be a God, a force, but it is definitely not the God of the Bible. And the prominent names in this field are atheists. Take Carl Sagan, for example. His best-selling sci-fi novel Contact was made into a movie. Sagan was one of the high priests of atheistic evolution. And it goes on. It says, consider another prominent name in sci-fi, Isaac Asimov. In a 1982 interview, he said, Emotionally, I am an atheist. I don't have the evidence to prove that God doesn't exist, but I so strongly suspect he doesn't that I don't want to waste my time. <laughs> Consider Robert Heinlein called, quote, the dean of science fiction writers. He rejected the Bible and promoted free sex. His book, Stranger in a Strange Land, is considered the unofficial Bible of the hippie movement. Heinlein <laughs> was a nudist and practiced polyamory. He promoted agnosticism in his sci-fi books, and it goes on. Arthur C. Clarke... Yeah, said he didn't want any religious rights associated with his funeral. Kurt Vonnegut was uh, honorary president of the American Human Association. Gene Roddenberry, creator of Star Trek, he was an agnostic and humanist who envisioned a world in which, quote, everyone is an atheist and better for it. Um, so it wraps up. Science fiction is intimately associated with Darwinian evolution. Sci-fi arose in the late 19th and early 20th century as a product of an evolutionary worldview that denies the almighty creator. In fact, evolution is the preeminent science fiction. Beware! Exclamation <laughs> point. But, and this, this is only scratching the surface, I mean. You know, you could go on and on listing uh, fantasy and science fiction authors, uh, you know, who are atheists or agnostics. I mean, we talked about um, Douglas Adams uh, a few episodes back. I mean, it's almost easier to mention ones who aren't. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's certainly some notable examples uh, who aren't. I mean, uh, Orson Scott Card comes to mind, who's a Mormon. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's actually a lot of Mormons, it seems like. Uh, of the religious science fiction writers, a lot of them are Mormon. Uh, uh, I mean, Gene Wolfe is Catholic. Uh, and, mm -hmm. of, of course, you know, um, 
Tolkien and Lewis uh, were, mm. were both really religious, although I guess Lewis had been an atheist for much of his life uh, before he converted. But yeah, I mean, there does seem to be this big, big disproportionate number uh, of atheists. I, I'm reminded, you know, I was at a, uh, a convention one time and they had a panel and the topic was, uh, you know, religion and science fiction, something like that. So, so someone said, well, how many, uh, let's, let's just get an idea of how many people in this room actually are religious. Uh, you know, just raise your hand if you go to church on any kind of regular basis. And this is an audience of, you know, 60, 70 people, something like that. And nobody raised their hand. And then you know, Jim McDonald, who was on the panel says, uh, so how many, how many of you consider yourself to be in church right now, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, at, at a science fiction convention, you know, people laugh and raise their hand. And that's really, you know, I mean, that's, a really striking little sort of experiment there. Cause I mean, something like 90% of the American public is religious. And so to have that many people, uh, there, there's something, there's something going on there. I'd actually be interested to see, uh, you know, among science fiction writers, if, if we did a sort of a poll of science fiction writers, you know, which ones of them identified as being religious or atheist or whatever, um, it, where the line is uh, it, for people who are primarily science fiction writers versus people who are primary fantasy writers. Um, Cause like for science fiction writers, I would think, I would think that the, that it would be a very, very small percentage of those who, who are actually religious. Whereas fantasy, I, I can see how there would be a larger percentage of fantasy writers just because like, you know, in the tradition of Tolkien and, uh, and Lewis, you know, I mean, I can see how it, it's a lot easier to sort of, draw parallels to, you know, your religious book of choice um, and, and, and do something that with, with that in a fantasy setting. Cause I mean, you know, for, from, from our point of view as atheists looking at things like the Bible and whatnot, I mean, that's like a fantasy story, right? I mean, it's, it's got all this magic and stuff in it. I mean, if you take it out of the context of religion and, and you say, and you say, well, Hey, here's this book. And you'd be like, well, I don't know. It's not very well written, but I mean, I guess there's some cool magic in it and stuff, but you know, uh, it's not much of a story. It kind of goes all over the place, but you know, um, <laughs> I mean, basically it's a fantasy novel. Um, you know, even though we, you know, science fiction writers uh, take scientific fact and sort of extrapolate and, and take it into, you know, fanciful fictional directions. Um, I mean, I think the underlying uh, supposition of most science fiction is that, it, it, it is that it has some basis in reality, you know? Um, and uh, I think that's, that draws a lot of um, people who also want to have, it, who, who also take that view in the real world and that, you know, they believe in what they can see, what they can, you know, scientifically prove and, and that kind of thing. And so um, I think it, it's just natural that, uh, that, that more people of that um, nature sort of gravitate towards science fiction. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, one of the things about uh, fantasy fiction that has, you know, that has gods and whatnot in it and the characters believe in the gods or, or don't, um, that, you know, one of the things that always kind of bugs me, like once I became an atheist and, and, and you know, like I'm fir firmly in that worldview, when I read those, it's like it's 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 really hard for me to, you know, to enjoy characters who actually do like characters who actually do uh, believe in a god, even in this fantasy setting. It's a completely different situation because in that setting, the gods have actually proven themselves that they exist, right? So, I mean, it's not like faith, you know, when you have that. Um, I, I mean, I kind of like, I, I kind of like how in George Martin, like the gods that they talk about, like, you know, they never make themselves uh, known at any point. And so you kind of assume that, well, you know, the characters believe in these gods, but they don't actually exist, you know. Uh, well, I just I want to say quickly on on the yeah. subject of George R. R. Martin is uh, I think that that's what's so that's one of the things that's so brilliant about that series, and I don't I don't know that's something that I ever saw before in fantasy because, you know, usually in fantasy any god, uh, 
or a prophecy that's presented, you can just take it for granted that it's real, um, and it's going to be proven that it's real sooner or later in the story. And uh, I think that's what's so interesting about Song of Ice and Fire is that you're you're never really sure what's going on with the supernatural stuff. Like, are these gods mm-hmm. real? Are they imaginary? Is there magic and people misinterpret it as gods? You know, mm-hmm. some of it's, I mean, some of it's obviously there's something supernatural going on. Some of it, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. And so it, it, it's, it feels much more like the real world where, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot more doubt and uncertainty about what the cosmology is. I don't particularly have a problem with gods as characters in stories, uh, especially in fan- I mean, in fantasy story, in fantasy stories. I mean, I've never particularly had a, a problem, say, with like the gods of um, the gods of Mount Olympus or something uh, mm-hmm. in Greek mythology, who are fantastic characters in the stories. Um, and it doesn't sort of irk me uh, if the characters believe in them. I mean, it does kind of irk me if there's a story which features a, a Judeo-Christian type God, because I just have all the same logical problems then with that fiction as I do with the religion as it's presented to me in the mm-hmm. real world. Like, well, why doesn't the God intervene? Like, why, you know, if the God's all powerful, why does all this bad stuff happen? You know, uh, if the God <laughs> knew what was going to ha- happen, why didn't he do stuff to prevent the bad stuff from happening, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's like all sorts of things that just don't make any sense to me at all about an all-knowing, all-powerful God. Okay, well, I mean, you know, I mean, one thing that I wanted to talk about was, you know, since we were talking to Richard Dawkins about evolutionary biology, uh, this is just something that's that's sort of come to bug me more and more in fantasy stories, is where you have gods and demigods who are who have a human body, you know, that that, that that's sort of just the, the more I read about evolutionary biology, the more I come to see how inevitably and inescapably everything about the human body is a product of our specific evolutionary history or, you know, the specific gravity of this planet, the distance from the sun, the, mm-hmm. you know, the life forms that evolved before us, you know, the atmosphere, et cetera, you know, everything like our eyes, our hair, our bones, mm-hmm. everything, you know, is a product of, of our specific history. And so it just, it makes less and less, I'm, I'm less and less able to, sus- to suspend my disbelief. When, I ha- when there are godlike beings who don't share our evolutionary history, you know, who existed before time, you mm-hmm. know, who, who come from a numinous realm, etc., who just happen to have five fingers, five toes. Mm-hmm. And, and it, just, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, why would a, a god, you know, floating in light or whatever have, you know, toenails, uh, mm-hmm. you know, have, have a spleen, you know, right, have right. testicles. I mean, what, what is this yeah. stuff for? Uh, yeah. We're... It's to have sex with mortals, dude. <laughs> I mean, but no, but, Zeus. but I mean, I, I could, you know, I'm totally cool with gods assuming human form, uh, mm-hmm. to interact with human beings. Okay. I mean, that's cool, whatever. But just, just the fact that gods are just innately human in form and, mm-hmm. you know, when they're sitting around the fire around Mount Olympus, whatever, you know, they actually just fundamentally are human shaped. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that just bothers me more and more, the more I think about it. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, that certainly doesn't make any sense. I mean, there's uh, I think there's various ways you can get around that. And if you're creating a mythology, like, you know, you could sort of have something where, like you say, uh, the God doesn't actually have a human form naturally it's like he's some sort of numinous being but um can take the form of humans for when he's interacting with humans but um then you also have a situation where you can have 
you know, the gods were once human or something, and then they arose, you know, they grew, they, they, they developed all this additional power and became gods or something like that. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it is weird though, because like in, in the Christian mythology, um, you know, uh, it explicitly states that, that, you know, humans are made in God's image. Right. So, um, so God would have had this form according to the Bible, you know, and then he made humans in his image. So that doesn't make any sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I've, I've had conversations with people who have tried to tell me that, that the plain meaning of the words means something than something other than what you just said. Um, uh-huh. But I, I think that that's a dodge, but. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. Any- no, I mean, I, I can see that though, too. I can, I can, I can see that. Um, I mean, obviously there's a lot of rationalizing uh, when you interpret anything from the Bible, like, you know, you try to figure out, well, how does this work with what I understand of the world? Um, and, and, but I mean, I, I could see that how, how made, made that made us in his image uh, could, could mean uh, something else than other than physical form. But, mm, but it, it does, it does irk me though, when I have conversations with people and I, and I just point out how silly it is to imagine God as a, you know, white man with a white beard and mm-hmm. they'll say, Oh, of course that's silly, but that's not what, mm-hmm. That's not what I believe. That's not what anyone ever believed. And it's kind of like, well, come on, look at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. obviously that's what people believed, uh, you know, mm-hmm. for, for most of history. Uh, right. That was the image of God that people had. Well, sure. I, actually, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's there's a tendency to just, you know, make make the gods look like we want them to. And I think making mm-hmm. them look human is, is part of that. But it, I can't remember where I read this, but there was this thing that's always really stuck with me where somebody said, uh, you know, forces could invent gods they would invent gods that look like horses mm-hmm. and uh and and just the idea of gods actually being human has always just seemed to me that sort of thing that sort of just self-aggrandizing uh you know sort of uh self-absorbed sort of uh, sort of thing yeah i mean they actually probably look like dolphins <laughs> you know because they're the they're the most intelligent species on this planet right mm. uh i mean i've always sort of like you know, like the uh, the Greeks had this idea that the circle was the perfect form and stuff. I've always mm-hmm. imagined, you know, that gods should be just sort of like spheres of light or mm-hmm. something, you know, mm-hmm. in their in their true form, you know. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. You know, speaking of spheres, it's just like, you know, that makes me think of like the planet Earth and, and, and the solar system. And, and, you know, it's like, and, and I mean, that's one of the things uh, that really first started making me question um uh, like religion is when, you know, we start learning science and, and you, and you learn about the planets and you think about, you think about God and, and you, you sort of think about how God is ruling over the humans. Right. But then you're, then you start learning about the solar system and you're like, uh, well, I mean, does he also rule over every other planet in the, so in the whole universe? Uh, you know, I mean, and, and, you know, obviously we, we, we've never come across any proof of, of alien life forms on other planets, but, but I mean, just even if even if there are no is even if there is no other life on other planets, doesn't it seem bizarre that there would be this whole universe out there that you know God would have been responsible for? But yeah, he's paying really he's paying close attention to what happens on on to these uh these little ape people on on <laughs> on Earth. Like why you know that's sort of one of the things that started me off questioning stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean that that this whole idea that. This whole idea that the the whole universe, like all of existence, was created to give us a place to live, mm-hmm. um, again, seems very self-absorbed. But, uh, you know, uh, somebody made the point, you know, if, if the universe was created explicitly to give us a place to live, it's very strange that 99.9999999, et cetera, percent of it is radioactive vacuum, which is instantly mm-hmm. lethal to all life, you know. Uh-huh. 
it's a very sort of strange plan for for creation you know right that that if if uh if, if somebody had in fact designed the universe to give us a place to live that universe would be the way that ancient people imagined it to be you know there would be like mm -hmm. a flat earth and you know some stuff in the sky to give us light and heat and and so mm -hmm. on and there wouldn't really be much beyond that you know one thing one thing from comics that i actually always uh enjoyed uh and and sort of tied to religion in, in a way in my mind was uh you know the you know the character galactus <laughs> yeah yeah uh, um so you know galactus is this like um you know gigantic world devouring entity uh but you know, and and so he has he has these heralds who go out and find him planets to devour, and, and the Silver Surfer is one of his heralds, and that's so that's what the Silver Surfer comic is about. Um, and uh, so now he so he's he's gigantic, he's like bigger than planets, you know, because he devours planets. But and so as an explanation of like where this creature, this you know this this uh, being came from, um, the explanation in the comics is that he was like the last survivor of the previous universe that existed before this one. And so he, um, you know, and he somehow escaped the destruction, the heat death of that universe and, and ended up in our universe. Um, and I was, thought that was kind of cool. And like, mm -hmm. it seemed to me like, like there was some sort of religious implications of that. Like, I mean, it's just like, it's, I could see religious implications of that. And, uh, it's kind of funny because in the comics, like, I don't remember them ever <laughs> mentioning anything like that. Um, but, uh, I always thought it was kind of cool. But I mean, I guess you mentioned, you know, that, that contemplating the scale of the universe is one thing that sort of caused you to start doubting religion. I mean, what was your sort of religious upbringing mm -hmm. and how did that all, how did that sort of change? Yeah. I mean, I was raised Catholic. Um, and I actually went to Catholic school for four years or, or maybe five as you count kindergarten, but, you know, through fourth grade. Um, and then I started going to public school after that. Um, and, uh, you know, when I was in Catholic school, you know, we used to have to go to, uh, it was interesting cause you know, we used to have to, we would have to go to church on Fridays, uh, you know, when we were in school. So we'd go with our class, but then you're also supposed to go to church on Sunday with your family, you know? Um, and, uh, and if this is one of those sort of ritualistic things that you end up, uh, doing when you're, when you're a part of, uh, you know, the Catholic religion. Um, but, um, so, you know, you go up and you get communion, but the thing was, if you didn't go to church on Sunday with your family, like you weren't allowed to go get communion on Friday um, with your class uh, because, you know, I think, cause I think you have to go do confession or whatever because you didn't go to church, you know, you have to, so you have to confess and be clean or whatever before you go get communion. Right. And so it was like this, this situation set up to ostracize you for, for not going to church. And, and the thing is like my, although my family, although my mother, you know, had me enrolled in this Catholic school, like she, you know, they never took me to, ch to church on Sunday. So it was just, it was just kind of uh, weird right from the start when I was a kid that I, you know, I was sort of uh, being ostracized from my, uh, from my class or being, you know, held out as, as a sinner basically uh, because my parents didn't take me to church. So I don't know. I mean, that may have had some influence on, on, on starting me off as a doubter uh, early on, even if I didn't realize it until much later. I don't know if I could pinpoint where I actually, you know, where I actually decided that I was atheist. But I mean, there was certainly an experience I had in college that uh, that didn't that, 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 that sort of helped me on the way toward towards becoming an atheist. And I mean, it's uh, it's I mean, it's kind of a funny story. But um, I mean, there, I, I was in a creative writing class, like in my first year of college and uh um, you know, there was a girl that I sort of had a crush on and, uh, and so, and so she was like in the little writing groups that we broke into, she was in my group. And, uh, I had actually written this story that was, um, sort of, uh, sort of, uh, questioning religion. I mean, it was about, 
uh, it was like sort of takes place in a in a future where you know like immortality is 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 an option for everyone and 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 you know that you give you know you, you sort of take this pill or whatever and and you can you know keep living on forever you know um, and uh, so it's about this priest who uh, um, is like. Uh, giving giving these things to the poor people, which um, you know who who, who couldn't get it uh, otherwise. But it, it was set up in this completely blasphemous way, you know. So like the priest is like basically giving the right, like giving the communion right, um, but giving these immortality pills to the homeless people instead. And 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 anyway, uh, because of that, like I you know I, I this girl was religious, and and I think she probably saw that as a cry for help or something, you know. Um, whereas I just thought it was a cool idea or something, you know. And, um, so anyway, like I, I, you know, I, I was interested in her and I asked her out and, 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 and she, uh, as it turns out, I mean, she basically just ended up befriending me because she wanted to save me, you know, cause she was a born again Christian and which I didn't realize until afterward, you know, but, uh, you know, so that, that, that sort of further soured me on the whole idea of religion that, you know, like she had, she actually had no interest in me and sort of led me on, um, but only because she wanted to save me. And I mean, I guess it's kind of nice in a way, but you know, it kind of, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, well, I appreciate it and everything, but you know, that's not really what I was interested in. And uh, I mean, I know I, I certainly science fiction played a large part in it for me because, like, I know, like, I read, um, like, Robert J. Sawyer. Um, he, he wrote a, he wrote he wrote several novels uh, early on that um, that sort of. Uh, deal with uh, religion in some way. Like the first book of his I read was The Terminal Experiment. And, um, you know, I think I've talked about it on the show before, but I mean, it's about, um, it's about a scientist who's trying to pro- uh, scientifically prove the, the concept of a soul. You know, they're trying to measure uh, different things, like when a person dies and everything. And, and so like to do this, he like creates these, uh, these uh, human simulations in a computer program. And then one of them ends up killing someone and, and he has to try to figure out who. And it's like, um, it, it's complicated, but anyway, the the whole notion that science fiction would deal with, um, you know, trying to prove the existence of a soul, uh, obviously, uh, in the book, you know, there's a lot of stuff that sort of would make someone question whether or not that that's actually even feasible, um, you know, and uh, I mean that probably helped me along that path as well. And actually, a lot of Robert Trey Sawyer's books actually do deal with religion in that way, um, to the extent that um, I interviewed him once and I and I asked him, you know, like if he was like sort of a tortured agnostic, uh, you know, meaning um, you're somebody who wants to believe but uh, but can't because of your scientific your scientific uh, uh, knowledge or whatever. Um, but you know, I mean, he turns out he's just an atheist, but um, I think he he thinks he, he I think he I think he finds that notion um, interesting of playing with religion in a science fictional context. Mm. Yeah. And what about you? I mean, you uh, you basically grew up with two parents who were scientists, and so uh, no religious upbringing at all, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I usually just tell people that I, you know, my parents aren't religious, and, and so I just never had it. But actually, I, I was thinking about it just in preparation for this episode. It's actually a little more nuanced than that, because my parents, when I was a real little kid, my parents were really reluctant to, you know, sort of pass their beliefs on to me. They sort of wanted me to make up my, my own mind, and uh, I don't think I asked them particularly often, but I think if I if I were to ask them, you know, they would just be like, well, what, what do you think, you know? And so I can remember when I was a real little kid, I actually, I thought my parents were religious. I mean, we never went mm. to church, but, uh, you know, just because everybody I knew was religious. I mean, lots of people who aren't, who are religious don't go to church. Um, mm-hmm. And so I just assumed that they they had some sort of mild religious beliefs. And, uh, but I, ne- I never did. I mean, <laughs> uh and, you know, like I, I said in an earlier episode, I mean, I, I was not a strictly rational kid. I mean, I, I believed in all sorts of stuff I think is silly now, like uh, 
alien abduction and the Loch Ness monster mm-hmm. and Bigfoot and you know stuff like that. But uh, just just the idea that my my friends and family were kind of telepathically communicating with an invisible hmm. man in the sky who was giving them good advice and sort of like granting wishes and stuff. I mean, that just from from the time I was three years old, I was just like that can't possibly be be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can remember like thinking that I was the only person in the world, you know, who realized that this this was all made up, mm-hmm. um, and just how uh, sort of scary uh, and isolating that was. And one one of the reasons I was drawn to science fiction was because, you know, back before you know Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett and all this stuff, you know, there really wasn't much atheism in popular culture. And like science fiction always just sort of struck me as this little sort of island of sanity. Uh, and mm-hmm. It's just sort of sea of superstition. Actually, you know, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, just like thinking of this con- this this topic in terms of science fiction, I, I one of the questions I've sort of wondered uh, from time to time is like, would it be possible to, for us, you know, uh, to actually conceive of a world like in fiction without, you know, without any religion? Like, you know, could you build a fantasy world? you know, that has humans in it as we understand them, basically, but just, like, there's no presence of, of religion at all at, at any point in their history. Like, no one ever thought of the idea of religion. Like, is that is that, is that actually possible, do you think? Well, I mean, you mentioned Robert Sawyer. I mean, I haven't read mm. Hominids, but my understanding of it is that it's uh, it, mm. it sort of presents, part, part of the book is it presents this alternate world in which oh, yeah, yeah. Neanderthals mm. um, evolved into modern humans. Um, and mm-hmm. apparently Neanderthals didn't bury their dead. Mm-hmm. Um, so the speculation is that they had no concept of an afterlife. I don't know if that's still the uh, mm-hmm. sort of cutting edge science or not, but uh, that was at least pe- something people were thinking about at some point. And so I think in his book, it presents the sort of evolved Neanderthals as uh, sort of more uh, sort of uh, secular and humanistic, mm-hmm. uh, just at a biological level uh, than, mm-hmm. than, than we are. Yeah, actually, you're right. Yeah, I mean, I actually did read that that series. Um, yeah, the Neanderthals, like, because they, they they it's like they they come from like an alternate um, universe, basically that that crosses over with our universe, and so the the Neanderthals that evolved in that world, uh, you know, uh, end up traveling over to ours, uh, and so you know we're able to you know sort of get a glimpse of their culture. And yeah, you're right. They uh, they did uh, evolve completely without um, any notion of religion. Um, okay, but so then the then the last thing I kind of wanted to talk about was. Uh... In fantasy, uh, in recent years, the most sort of uh, unapologetically atheistic work has been uh, the His Dark Materials trilogy by Philip Pullman, starting with The Golden Compass. I don't know, I guess, John, just uh, what did you think about Golden Compass in particular? Uh, did you like it? Uh, yeah, I actually loved it. Um, you know, and I uh, and this is kind of a kind of on a side note, I listened to the audiobook, and the audiobook is honestly one of the best audiobooks ever. It's read by Philip Pullman, who like it has this amazing deep, deep uh, like narrative uh, voice, and uh, but then it also has a full cast reading all the different characters. So like Pullman reads all the narration, and and different people read all the characters, and the and the person who who reads the part of Lyra, who's like the protagonist, is just like perfect. Um, but anyway, uh, but yeah, I mean, I I, I was completely completely just uh spellbound by the by the whole book and uh um you know i mean and and you know sort of i mean a spoiler alert i mean the the book sort of lead leads up to this uh big revelation at the end that you know it's like basically um 
what 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 is it exactly like they're going off to kill god or god's dead or there's some kind of thing about god being dead at the end of the end of it or something right well that's that's in the in the third book yeah do you want to oh okay do you want to just i guess we i guess like yeah we gave a spoiler warning i mean essentially what happens at the end is that uh the characters find god who's this sort of uh withered old man who wants to die you know and his sort of subordinates are are keeping him alive uh, against his will and also he is not really the creator of the universe uh, he was sort of the first angel as it were to sort of coalesce out of the cosmic you know substance and he pretended that he had created everything uh, you know, he lied and, and, and mm. uh, um, but he's sort of this this lie is sort of spun out of control and, and now he's uh, he can't he can't uh, get out of the situation that he's created but yeah, I mean, just the fact that it was so explicitly atheist was really astonishing. And I mean, and then, you know, I mean, it's really aimed at, um, you know, it's not it's not even YA. I think it's even aimed at younger readers. So, I mean, I was just really thrilled that such a book exists and, and uh, that not only that, but it was popular and it's on recommended reading lists and everything. And I mean, I'm sure I'm sure there must have been tons of protests against the book when it came out. But um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just great that that kids now you know, they'll encounter this sort of randomly um, or, or, you know, even through a, a school reading list. And then maybe that'll, you know, get them started questioning things uh, earlier on than maybe uh, we had or, or early on than I had been able to because of, of, you know, the way I grew up. But, but uh, I guess, I guess that brings us to the movie though. I mean, what did you, uh, did you, did you see the movie? I mean, what did you think of that? Yeah. You know, I mean, I saw the movie and God, it's so beautiful. I mean, like, and the, just seeing the, uh, seeing York Bjornesson uh, brought to life on screen, like that was amazing, you know, but you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big book to try to uh, adapt into a movie. And, and I don't know how well you could actually follow the thing without having read the book. Um, I mean, cause there's a lot of stuff that's taken out and like it ends before the book ends. It ends significantly before the book ends. It's, it's, I, I really enjoyed watching it. Uh, watching the characters and everything come to life, but um, but it certainly got a lot of issues, um, you know. Uh, and also because you know we were talking about how great the audiobook is, um, I, I I couldn't help but be a little disappointed with the girl who plays Lyra, um, because like the person the the woman who narrates her voice on the audiobook is so great that like I think it would be really hard for any uh, you know actual regular actor to to live up to that performance uh, in the movie, but. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I don't know. I think you had a, a stronger reaction to it when you saw it, right? Well, I actually, I actually liked it quite a bit. I mean, I, I saw it in L. I saw, actually caught a, a sort of an advanced screening of it when I was in LA and the crowd seemed to, to really enjoy it. Uh, it, it subsequently got very mixed reviews. I mean, I think maybe I had a more sort of realistic sense of what you can, of, of what some of the, uh, uh extenuating circumstances were, uh, in, in getting that movie made. Uh, than maybe sort of the general public. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, you know, when you're, it was like, it was like a $160 million picture or something like that. And, you know, just, just to make, and I think the studio, they probably didn't, they probably uh, dramatically underestimated how much of a back, a sort of anti-atheist backlash there was going to be uh, against that movie. They were just sort of looking at it as another uh, Lord of the Rings or, or Narnia. Mm-hmm. Um Apparently there was, I mean, they, they did a bunch of stuff to, uh, to sort of downplay the, the anti-religious aspects of the story, which was kind of a shame from my point of view. And also, uh, the studio apparently just chopped the hell out of the thing. 
so the the theatrical version i mean they they chopped out like you said they chopped out the ending they moved stuff around uh there was a lot of pressure for it to have a happy ending and to be inoffensive uh and family friendly uh and so um you know the director has has said that he would uh, he had said that he would like to do a a director's cut that he mm. that he said he estimated would be about two and a half hours long, mm-hmm. um, which you know obvious because I mean a big problem with that movie is just how frenetic and rushed and choppy it is, and I think a two and a half hour version, you know, would would maybe fix all of that. But uh, I still think it's I, th- I still think it's quite an enjoyable movie. I mean I think it's at least as good as like a Harry Potter movie or a Narnia movie, uh, mm-hmm. all of which got sequels, um, and I was really. Uh, disheartened that they didn't uh that that movie didn't get a sequel because especially like as i said you know given how uh uh controversial particularly the third movie i i understand would have been uh that really mm-hmm. would have been something to see yeah well and and i just think it's it's just a, it just kind of depresses me that you know whenever there's a boycott against something uh it generally people are like well it doesn't do any good it actually just brings more publicity to the thing mm-hmm. and uh you know ends up benefiting it but I think this was a case where a boycott, you know, a sort of censorious boycott clearly succeeded, you know, that the movie did, did, I think it exceeded expectations in every country except the United States where it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, did, did much, much worse than anyone expected, uh, because of this, uh, this boycott. And, uh, it just makes me sad, A, or, you know, A, that I won't get to see the sequel because of that and B, just on principle that censorship mm-hmm. and just sort of, sort of nasty anti-atheist prejudice uh was successful uh, in this case so my my new stepdaughter you know I, he's, I just i just got married in in, in uh, august so uh you know my 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 wife's uh, daughter uh is nine and, and you know she's uh she's got all these all these books on her recommended reading list and you know she has to read a certain amount of time every day and and, and whatnot we've actually got a thing right now where she has to read it she has to read uh, for every hour she reads, she can watch an hour of TV, you know, because <laughs> you know, otherwise she just sit and watch TV all the time. Uh, but so, you know, we were talking about different books and stuff, and 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 I was like, oh, you know what, you should look for, you should get the Golden Compass. That's a great book. And uh, and she's like, wow, they made a book out of that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, no, it's the other way around. The other way around. The book came first, and then they made a movie out of that. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, I, I I think that would be a cool thing to get her to read. Obviously, for a lot of the reasons we're uh, you know, I mean, because. You know, sort of, and, and I mean, this 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 is a child that has been raised entirely without uh, any religious upbringing. So, um, I mean, I, I, it would be interesting to see her take on it, just because, like, I mean, I, I can't I can't imagine that she would think there would there was anything weird about it at all. You know, about the the sort of anti-religious bent to it. So, uh, but and also, it's just a great story, and it's something that um, you know her mother and I both read and loved. So, I mean, I thought it would be something cool for her to actually read because we could actually talk about it with her. Um, All right, so I think we're going to wrap things up there. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, thanks to Richard Dawkins for joining us on the show. Um, and you know, uh, as always, if you want to support the show, you can uh, go to our website and and you can make a donation via PayPal. Or if you just want to support us for free, you can go to iTunes or or your favorite uh, podcast directory and, and leave us a review or rating. Um, how many reviews are we up to on iTunes, Dave? Seventy two. We have seventy two. So we were hoping to get up to a hundred by the end of the year. So um, if you like the show and and you and you love it and you want to. Um, you know, help spread the word, go ahead and do that and uh, either post a review or just give us a rating. Um, And of course, if you tell a friend, that always helps too. All right. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.
The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of io9. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.